This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Our Scott Radley, of course, host of the Scott Radley Show, uh, bumped into Michael Andlar, I guess, and had a discussion with him the other day. Uh, and it uh, had something to do with a discussion that I had with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger earlier this week when he was here for the town hall meeting. Scott, of course, uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on uh, what uh, was said and and maybe the implications of it, too. How are you doing this morning, Scotty? Great, Bill. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, interesting piece today in The Spectator. Uh, and it's, it's basically, I guess, Michael responding to what uh, Mayor Eisenberger told me last Monday uh, when asked about the arena possibilities here, basically said it was going to take years before the city ever got around to it. I, that was one of those things where you, you know, the, 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 the eyes roll back and you figure, oh, here we go again. But uh, tell, us, tell us about the conversation you had with Michael Andlar about this. Well, yeah, you are responsible for this, Bill. So I, just, uh, I, I, you know, I will take ownership of it. You'll take ownership of that one. And people can go, by the way, if they want to hear it, to, uh, to your uh, podcast from a few weeks ago and hear the mayor's complete answer to this. But essentially, yeah, it was, I think it was a, a listener who had asked a question yeah. on your uh, town hall about what was going on, because people will remember back in November, Michael Andlauer had said, you know, something has to be done with the arena, whether it's for the Bulldogs or just because First Ontario Centre is beginning to get old. And you'll recall that they have passed uh, a motion to spend, I think it's $4.5 million just to fix escalators and elevators, and that's not the totality of the things that need to be fixed in there. So something has to be done. And he said, look, I'll put up dollar for dollar, whatever the city will, for a new arena, 5,000 to 10,000 seats, which caught a lot of people's attention because this is not something sports owners traditionally do, at least not around here. No. So that's what got the thing started. Your listener then asked the question, and Mayor Fred said, well, yeah, this is going to take years to, not to build something, not to fix something. It's going to take years to figure out what we're going to do with this arena. And so when I talked to Michael Anlauer, his comment was, well, if it takes years to figure out what we're going to do with it, which will obviously, because of, he didn't say this, I added this, because of every other decision in this city takes more than whatever prescribed time is allotted, LRT, Red Hill Creek, Pier 6, or Pier 7, Pier 8, on and on and on. So now we're talking... Well, let's not, let's not forget the stadium. Stadium, of course, yes. Everything takes longer. So a few years, a couple of years, might be three, four, five, who knows. Then you've got to figure out who you're going to partner with if you're going to do it as a private-public partnership. Then you have to design the thing and plan it and get the permits and everything else. Then you have to build it. Now you could be talking five, probably closer to ten years down the road. And you know, when I talked to Michael Landlauer, his comment was, that's just not good enough. That's not what I'm looking for with the arena right now. It's got to be a lot quicker than that. And, Bill, you know, we can have the discussion all day long in this city, and a lot of people will and a lot of people have, about whether the city should be in the arena business, whether the city should be putting money towards their arena. We can have that discussion, but I think most people are going to be in agreement with him on the concept of why does it have to take so bloody long for every single decision? And on that point, I think a lot of people are nodding their heads saying, yeah, I, I agree with you. Let's speed this thing up. 
especially because when and by the way we did reach out to to Michael Landlord uh, for this morning as well and he's uh, he's going to join us later on uh, uh, probably next week he's tied up at a convention he's uh, speaking at the, you know, he, he makes his money obviously well some of his money in the uh, in the transportation business and he's uh, tied up with that but we we'll hook up with him but when I was talking to Michael about this a little while ago that that seems to be the essence of it because there's a couple of things here that make this different from some of the stuff we've just listed here about the inaction with city council You've got somebody from the private sector that's going to say, hey, I'm going to match that. I'll give you some money toward this. Uh, and there were some very, very preliminary discussions, and you saw some of this stuff, Scott, uh, by some of the other councillors, not necessarily by the mayor, about maybe offering up some land. Uh, it, it, that may be the city's contribution. It may not even be cash. It could be any number of different things like that. But they don't seem to even want to have a serious discussion, a, a formal discussion about this. And that's got to be awfully frustrating for, for the Bulldogs and Andlar. Well, you're kind of, um, if you're in his position, and I, I'm trying to put myself in his position, I, I'm not a multimillionaire, so it's difficult to uh, to completely understand. But um, to put myself in his position, you're at the mercy somewhat of the city unless you decide to go out and build your own arena entirely with private money, which will compete then with a city-owned arena for concerts and everything else. And ultimately, that may be something that happens. I don't know if that would be ever something that he would consider. But you are, in most cases, especially if the city is talking about doing something, you are kind of at their mercy. And so, you know, look, people who have succeeded in business, like he has, like so many other people in this community have, haven't been successful in business by sitting around and waiting forever. Nobody, I, I find me... Bill, find me a business person, male or female. I think you said you have Teresa Cascioli coming on in a few minutes. Ask her if she made her money and got successful in business by sitting around doing nothing, waiting for someone else to make something happen. No, we we know the answer to that. They're they're go-getters. They're aggressive people. They're smart. Uh, and and Michael's, you know, he fits that to a T. We get that. And, you know, we're lucky to have this guy here. But uh, everybody... even Michael Andlar has got to start losing patience with these guys if this is going to drag on for years. Well, especially because, again, these people have done this, and now they are, he is in the situation where he has to wait on some people who traditionally, historically, have taken a, I don't want to say leisurely, but have languished towards decisions. Let's use that language. And it is, I imagine, it is very frustrating for him a guy who is used to doing stuff, to be sitting and waiting and waiting and get the sense that, you know, I could be waiting a very long time, and then he hears your interview with the mayor, and I'm not dumping on the mayor. I think the mayor is absolutely accurate. I think it will take a few years, and that's the issue. I don't think it's necessarily his fault. It's the tradition of council. Things take more time than they would in the private sector for decisions to be made, a lot more time sometimes, and You've been there, Bill. Tell, tell me why it is that it couldn't be sped up. I, I mean, I, maybe not as fast as things that would happen when you have one person running a business. I understand one person making a decision is easier. But how is it that things on council couldn't be sped up to some degree with decisions? Well, because there's always going to be pushback, no matter what. I mean, whether you want to build uh, the, the link, whether you want to build an arena, a stadium, there's always going to be a, a pushback from people that are going to say, that's a waste of our tax dollars' money. And, and councillor, in an election year, councillors are fearful of that. I mean, they don't like to hear negative things. They like to be loved. Uh, it's part of the job, 
but it's a part of the job that they they really aren't really very happy about. So, and I understand that. All right, but at the same time, if you want to be a leader, then you need to lead, and you have to make some tough decisions about things like this. And uh, this is an opportunity when you got somebody like a Michael Landlar comes along and says, "I'm going to help you to do this," but you know we've got to sit down and have some serious discussions. And uh, to my knowledge, they haven't had those. I know, you know, the, Michael has been talking about this for a couple of years now. This is not a new story. But again, <laughs> I, I think you've just underscored the mayor's point. It's been about two years since he first brought this subject up, and nothing's been done. Absolutely nothing. No. And, and so now they're going to, and another point that Michael and Lauer made yesterday was, the idea that some money is going to be spent is always controversial around council table because we know they have talked many times about the infrastructure deficit and the money that Hamilton doesn't have. And you know what, Bill? We all know that and we all understand that and we all accept that. The city is not flush with money, so this is not an easy decision. And Lauer's point, though, is you're dropping $4.5 bucks into some escalators and elevators for a building that you may, in short order, in a year or two or three or four, whatever, decide is no longer useful so you're already spending money. It's not like you're not spending money. Money is going to be spent. So his point is, let's spend the money towards something that is long-lasting rather than a stopgap measure. Because then, let's say in let's say they expedite this process, and in two years they decide they're going to do this San Marula plan. They're going to give all these facilities to a developer who then can develop as he wishes or she wishes in exchange for building a new arena, a new convention center, and a new uh, concert hall, that money, that $4.5 million plus whatever else happens in the next few years, is just wasted. It's, it's squandered. It's thrown away. It's torn down. Well, his point is, why are we doing that? Let's look forward and spend the money in a long-lasting way. And again, I think a lot of people can look at that and say, if I'm going to be moving and tearing down my house or building a new house on my property in two years, do I want to put on a new roof right now? And a lot of people would say, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. No, but therein lies the problem. And, and there's, there, there are opportunities here. And I know you referenced in the piece that, uh, that's in the spec today uh, about this story that uh, Michael referenced about having a discussion. He was out at the, the Prospects game. Those are all the junior hockey players that uh, basically are showcased uh, you know, so they can uh, improve their lot when they go to the draft a little bit later on. But anyway, it was in Regina, which by the way, is the city that beat Hamilton out of, uh, you know, for the Memorial Cup. Uh, and he, I know for a fact that he had a discussion with Dave Branch, who's the commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League out there, and, and basically Branch kind of just pointed the arena and said, this could have been you, you know, this could have been in Hamilton if you guys had a decent arena. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the, that was the message. And, and he's right. I mean, because, you know, it's embarrassing that a small little town that's half the size of us that has a not a very good hockey team is going to be hosting the Canadian Junior Championship, and we got beat out simply because our, our arena is antiquated. It is a, it is a, tough, dis, it's a tough discussion, Bill, because, again, and, and there's stuff on Twitter right now with people saying it's an arena. We, it's, it's a low priority. It's an arena. And again, I go back to my point. That is a discussion that we can certainly have, and I think the city should have. But as it stands right now, you have an arena that is antiquated by all standards, that is needing millions of dollars. So one way or another, the city needs to make a decision about what it's going to do. Is it going to simply maintain this arena? And if they choose that, then that's what they choose. It's going to cost millions of dollars, and it is old, but they can make it work. Or do you want to do something else? But to just keep banging this around and 
sending it back to or giving it to, to staff and saying, come up with a long-term thing. They had a report by Jasper Kajaski. When, when did that come in? A year, almost a year ago now, a private sector report on some ideas. This thing has already got some foundation, at least and I, some ideas that you could, if you wanted to look at it, got some research behind it. It's got some facts and some information about the state of the arena. I, I just I, I I sympathize with Ann Lauer on the idea that this thing, if you're talking about a few years just to make a decision, again, Bill, you're bang on. These are difficult things for counselors to decide on, but I can't understand how it could take two, three years when a lot of the study has been done or at least a fair amount of it, when you know what the circumstances are, two, three years is a long time. Surely that could be expedited one way or the other. There's there's an opportunity here, and and I'm glad you brought up that consultant's report that, that was done uh, because that was actually funded, by, as you mentioned, by private sector money. Now, and and they were quite clear the people that, that ponied up for that dis, uh, are not necessarily partners here. They just wanted to find out some information, but. Some of them that I have talked to have said, you know what, we may want to go to that next step and, and maybe work with Michael and the city and whoever else might be at the table to make something like this happen. And there's some pretty high-profile people that are willing to at least listen to that haven't said no yet. And that's a big difference from the stadium issue because, as you recall, nobody in the private sector decided to help out with the stadium issue. It was the government money from the feds, the province, and the city. That was it. Uh, and, and so we never got that. But now all of a sudden there's an opportunity here. So we don't even know if the city's going to have to be a 50-50 partner in this. There could be a whole lot of other things going on, but you're not going to find out if you at least don't talk about it. You mentioned something else, Bill, that I think is really important with this, and that is the fact you know what 2018 is. It is an election year, yep. and so for that reason, on top of everything else, I expect that this will not be mentioned more than it absolutely has to be around the council table because a number of these councillors have been down the road of the stadium debate. They've been through the LRT debate, and I'm pretty sure the last thing they want to launch into right before an election is another contentious debate about another project that could somehow make them feel like they're in the middle of the crosshairs of the electorate. So I expect it's going to have to be dealt with at some point. I would not expect to hear a whole lot about this at council, more than what Sam Marula already brought forward, that motion. I think now this thing gets sat on and try to ride this out until at least after the election when it might come back up for discussion. You may disagree on that one, but I just I don't see them wanting to wade into this one too much right now. No, they may not want to, but the reality here, whether you like arenas, whether you like hockey, whether you like anything, is it's a city asset. We, we own the darn thing. And we own Hamilton Place, and we own the convention center, and they're tired, they're, they're, they're outdated, they're not practical, and they're not the sort of thing that's going to attract new businesses or other things like this to this community. That's the reality. So let's make a decision on that. I mean, right now, it's, it's silly to simply keep pouring money into these things and, and basically putting duct tape on them to try to make it go. I mean, you know, could that arena stick around for another few years for concerts and stuff? Yeah, probably. But the, the, the business is going to diminish and diminish and diminish, plus the fact that you've got a guy like Michael Andlar who may simply start looking for other options. And uh, that's not a very pleasant scenario, but it could be a reality. He's not said that. He's not that sort of a guy. But th- th- look, at you're right. He's, he's a successful businessman. Look what he's done with this hockey club since he brought this junior A team in here. They're one of the best teams in the country now. 
and and probably going to play in that tournament. He's not going to put them play in a sad sack facility anymore. Bill, do you think, and again, you've been there, you know better than anybody, do you think a counselor around that table could separate themselves by coming forward or, or leading the discussion on this one in an intelligent way and getting this conversation going, or is that just way too dangerous for anyone no, around that table? No, I right agree now? with you. I don't think it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, just a couple of, I, I've, I've had anecdotal conversations with a couple of counselors, and uh, I was surprised to find out that uh, these are veteran counselors that I was talking to. None of them have even met Michael Andelar. I figure this is a guy who's a mover and shaker in this city and is trying to partner with the city on a couple of initiatives. And you guys don't even know the guy? I said, pick up the phone and have a cup of coffee with the guy, for heaven's sakes. Anyway, we got Yeah, it's my understanding that when uh, that story came out about him offering the dollar for dollar that Councillor Farr got in touch with him, and that may be the only counselor who reached out. I could be wrong on that, but as far as I know, that's the only counselor who reached out. It's puzzling, to say the least. Uh, great piece in the spec, and of course, uh, Scotty will be on 6 o'clock tonight, 6 till 8, right here on CHML. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, things uh, got a lot more interesting in the uh, progressive conservative race uh, for the leadership here in the province of Ontario yesterday with the announcement and uh, pending announcement, we're told, of a couple of other folks. Uh, Doug Ford, of course, was the only declared candidate to take over after Patrick Brown resigned last week. But uh, as of yesterday, former Cabinet Minister Christine Elliott tweeted, I'm in, which puts her into the race. And our uh, friends at Global News, Alan Carter and others, uh, are telling us today that uh, Carolyn Mulroney is also in, although hasn't officially declared. Oh, that's not much of a a barrier these days, and also Rod Phillips, a former businessman, uh, is uh, likely to join the race and probably going to do that uh, sometime this weekend. Joining us to talk about all of this is Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Windsor. Cheryl, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Great to be here, Bill. This is uh, such a bizarre circumstance. I mean, you know, for those of us that have been watching politics for the longest time, uh, despite the fact that, if they, you know, it, there are ups and downs in this, there's usually a protocol that's followed. But since this midnight resignation of Patrick Brown, it just seems that there's no rules here. This just kind of looks like a political free-for-all. Yeah, certainly it does. Um, and, you know, it, it changes day by day. Uh, I think people were a little bit surprised when Doug Ford threw his hat in the ring so quickly. They were surprised, too, when uh, Vic Fideli decided he wasn't going to run. Uh, so, uh, you know, people, I think, if you're trying to weigh whether or not this is a good time to throw your hat in the ring for the leadership uh, and whether or not you have a real shot at becoming Premier of Ontario, you got to make your decisions really fast because this is this is a fast-moving train. Well, the Fideli thing, I thought, was rather interesting. I mean, you know, he made it known uh, just the day after Brown left that he was interested in the job. Uh, and would be happy to lead his party into the election. And uh, they made him the interim leader, of course, but he kind of assumed that, well, that means I'm going to be the guy going into the election. And then all of a sudden he says, no, I don't want the job anymore. Uh, I, I don't know if he had a conversion on the road to Damascus or something, but it just seems a, a, a total about face very quickly. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I'm not an insider, so I'm not really sure exactly why uh, he made that decision. Um, I think he was hoping, uh, he, and, and some of the... the 
uh, the chatter about this is that he was hoping he could just keep the the the, the interim job and and then kind of go with that uh, when it when it became clear it was going to be a race. Um, I think that was uh, one of the things that that uh, made him a bit gun shy, uh, and you, you don't know who else is going to come into uh, you know to run against you and and how difficult that would be. Um, and he's you know he's already done that before. Um, I, I think if it was a, a clear path, I think he would have definitely stayed there. Um, but the uncertainty surrounding it was probably part of the reason why. Um, there's probably there may be other things going on there that we don't know about. Maybe we'll find out later. But uh, him being out of the races, uh, it does change things a lot. Well, it's interesting because that decision, plus the fact that Lisa McLeod, who's another one of the high-profile members in the Tory caucus, uh, made it known that she wasn't interested in the job. And and that's running counter to what usually happens in these things, really, isn't it, Cheryl? Because usually, you know, you run, you, you go through the ranks, and, and there's always one or two people on the caucus that, yeah, okay, I want to take a shot at this. I mean, that's how Mike Harris got the gig. That's how uh, that's how Tim Hudak got the gig. And, and you know, both the two high, highest-profile people, really, in the in that caucus uh, said, no, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, and uh, even, you know, what this does now mean that Christine Elliott coming in is the person that's closest to somebody that was in the caucus, but of course she's not. So really, all the people that we're talking about right now, none of them are people that hold a seat. Uh, in the uh, uh, in the the uh, provincial legislature, so uh, it will be somebody coming in that's uh, that's somewhat new. Although it's hard to say that Christian Elliott's new, but you're right that it is really interesting that nobody that's actually in the caucus right now have have thrown their hat in the ring. Mind you, uh, remember we still have some time because uh, people have until February 16th to declare whether or not they want to run. Well, I was going to ask you: Do you think the is the card full here, or do you think there may be one or two others that may jump in? Uh, you know, it's interesting because of the complexity of it. Um, you know, for for about a day, we thought, okay, is this really going to be just Doug Ford running? Uh, <laughs> and uh, that would have been a really uh, interesting uh, conundrum, I think, for the the PC party because they want to have some kind of a race. Uh, so I think people got on the phones and started calling folks and said, "Look, you've got to throw your hat in because this this is not healthy for us to have just one person." Uh, and and I think as the as more people kind of declare, it, it you. Look Look at who's in the party, and you look at where they're going to line up, and uh, it, it does change the complexity of it. So there could be somebody that's sitting in in uh, caucus right now, trying to trying to read those tea leaves to say, "Well, do I have a shot at this?" And if they think that they do, um, you know, it, 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 there's nothing stopping them other than the uh, the cost, obviously, of, of entry, uh, which some people have actually uh, pointed to as being a, a little bit rich. Do you think? Uh, but uh, yeah, well, wow. rich for me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, definitely, yeah. It's, it's seventy-five thousand just to enter, uh, twenty-five thousand for uh, uh, access to the party membership list, which, uh, of course, Fidelity has just raised some questions about because uh, we're not sure what's gone on with the list. It looks like it's been hacked, uh, but uh, in any case, that list, and then another twenty-five thousand for uh, compliance uh, deposit, whatever that uh, is, uh, in uh, in the uh, grand scheme of things. But that's that is pretty. Uh, that's a lot, uh, and then of course all of the the money you're going to have to put into uh, the actually uh, advertising, etc. Although this is a short campaign, uh, so that might you know mitigate a little bit of, of your spending. Although I'm sure people could spend pretty quickly on this. Yeah, the compliance thing is rather bizarre. Twenty five thousand bucks, and basically they say you might get that back if you play nicely during the campaign. Um, yeah, yeah. It's rather, it's, it's rather vague. I'm not exactly sure what they're they're attempting to do there. But and, and of course, if you're going to run, you need the membership list. You got to have that. 
So there's yeah. 25 grand that you're going to have to spend. So this is it's it's really rather odd, and that you're probably right. It's limiting the number of people that might actually want to take a shot at this. I think so. Yeah, it's uh, you know you actually have to have some pretty good backing or some uh, you know uh, some ties to uh, your own personal. Uh, uh, you know, a uh, stash of, of, uh, of money for this. Uh, and, and it's hard. You, it's not like we have time uh, to, you know, go out and canvas people and say, uh, will you donate to my campaign? Uh, because, of course, all of this is, is, is hugely truncated because of, of the events uh, that happen, uh, you know, and, and everything that keeps happening so quickly since uh, Brown announced his resignation, which surprisingly, and I was looking at this today, it was a week ago, but it feels like longer because Doesn't things it, keep though, happening yeah. so much. Yeah, it does. Let's let's talk about the individuals. In the, and you're right. I mean, aside from Christine Elliott, who of course worked in the in the Harris government and and later around for Ernie Eves, uh, and and of course take this is her third shot at this now. And uh, uh, is is the third time the charm, or uh, you know, is that baggage the fact that she's run twice and not been successful? You know, it will be for some people. It'll be baggage, um, and it's not like she was really close either of those times. Even in 2015, she came in second, but she was a distant second to Hudak. Uh, sorry, not Hudak, to Brown. Uh, she was. Uh, she came in third when she ran against Hudak in 2009. Um, so she's not. There's. There's obviously people in the party that she's not appealing to. Uh, she is a red Tory. She's a centrist. Um, and some people say that Patrick Brown's platform is kind of hewing more to that centrist mm-hmm. position. But when he ran for the leadership, he did not appear to be that that person. He really was able to pull in some of the social conservatives, some of the people on the right, some of the people that actually uh, Doug Ford's going to appeal to. Um, so the, I don't know if she can remake herself that way. She's she's a known quantity. Uh, people know her. She She's been in the legislature for uh, many years, even the the role that she had as a patient advocate and uh, and and the, the job she took on as uh, ombudsperson for for patients in uh, Ontario and her her concern uh, uh, for the healthcare system and 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 uh, how well it treats uh, Ontarians, I think that almost hues a little bit more centrist uh, as as a big kind of platform issue. Um, so it, I don't know if she's going to be able to reach across the aisle on that. And so uh, obviously there's going to be people in the party that are looking and saying, okay, who are these people coming in and, and will they be able to, uh, to you know, broach some of those divisions in the party? Because we know there are divisions in the party. Let's talk about that platform. That's interesting because that that raised a lot of eyebrows when they came up and said, "Okay, here's here's what we're going to run on." And it was very well, maybe centrist. It certainly wasn't far right like previous policies had been. What mm-hmm. happens to? I mean, first of all, they're going to have to get a new picture for the for the front of it, obviously, because yeah, Patrick <laughs> Brown is uh, persona non grata now. But over and above yeah. that, uh, is is that the Bible that they're going to have to carry into this election? And and uh, whoever the leader is, are they tied to that? Uh, well, according to the party, they are requiring candidates to actually run on that platform. Now, uh, this is this is a conundrum for somebody like Doug Ford because the reason he, uh, when he announced, he said he was he was against the uh, the, the uh, carbon tax, yeah. uh, and and that was his big reason to get in there. And he's also recently said that he's against uh, supporting the, the wind sex education platform, which is also uh, the curriculum. Uh, changes that had, had gone on through the uh, the education system, which is also in the platform. So he's already said there's things in the platform I don't like. I, I don't know how the party forces people to uh, to run on the on that platform, but at the same time, I don't know how you don't run on the platform. It's already out there. It's been out there. People have talked about it. 
Um, it talk about confusing. I, uh, you know, for the voters, this is going to be a tough one to try and figure out who uh, who wants to go with whatever printed platform is out there, or if there's a new platform, or should we burn this platform and and have a new one that we're going to print? Uh, you know, it's so much easier, and I can understand why the party says, look, you know, stick with this one. Um, and a lot of the people that were that we're looking at throwing their hat in the ring. Like if Mulroney comes in, if Rob Phillips comes in, those people were going to run under that platform anyway. So I think that they are a little bit more malleable. It, it right now, Doug Ford's the, the kind of the wild card on that. Um, and maybe he is expressing some concern inside the, the caucus. Uh, we know that there's divisions in that caucus. Uh, and some of those people uh, that had been associated with the party had been, you know, so incensed by the, the platform and the direction that they were considering, you know, uh, moving away from the party altogether. And, and we know the Trillium Party started up uh, uh, as, as this stuff was coming out in the, in the news and, and these debates were seemed to be uh, kind of tone deaf to that, that side of the party. So this could be this whole um, leadership race could be quite divisive for the party. And of course, the, uh, the win liberals and, uh, and uh, the NDP would love not, nothing more than that to happen. It's the the Doug Ford thing with the carbon tax is somewhat problematic because if, uh, for those that have read the policy uh, platform, uh, all the promises that they make there, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, the daycare spaces they're going to create, all the stuff is funded by the carbon tax. So if, mm-hmm. not, if, if Ford doesn't want the carbon tax, pretty much all those other promises go out the window. Yeah, there's a tax cut in there, which is much more, you know, Tory friendly, I would say, uh, to pretty much everybody. But yeah, that's that's pretty much was going to be funded by the carbon tax. Um, and the carbon tax, it, it did kind of copy what was going on in BC that the Liberals had put in, uh, or at least talked about in 2008, uh, or put in place in 2008. Um, so there's, you know, there's, and the Liberals are, are kind of a little bit more right focused in, in yeah, that's that so you got to watch terminology when you start looking uh, yes, at the different show. You know, there are liberals in, in Quebec and there are liberals in B.C., but they're really conservatives if you look at policies. Absolutely, yeah. If, you, uh, if you're trying to compare them across the spectrum, you're right, absolutely. So, so yeah, so that's more of a right-friendly way to approach this, but at the same time, there's people that the, the whole issue of carbon tax is anathema. Uh, the, you know, even during... Uh, uh, at the federal level, when you had uh, Stephen Dion suggesting this, uh, the green, the green shift uh, carbon tax, uh, which is very similar to what Patrick Brown had put in this, uh, in the, in the uh, People's Platform or People's Guarantee Platform uh, that's out there right now in Ontario, uh, it, pretty much everybody was against that uh, federally. All conservatives were. So there's, there's splits on this. This is not a straightforward. Uh, you know, conservative kind of policy. Um, so you can see where Doug Ford's kind of coming from on on that kind of more right focused uh, flank. Um, but this is you know, by raising this as a as a question and and something that obviously the party probably is 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 divided on. That's not something you want to do going into an election when we're you know what 130 days away from uh, from the actual election uh, in in June. So that's. Uh, I don't know if the, if the party brass are, are really thrilled about that. The fact that there's such a rift here, especially with uh, something as important as the party platform, uh, really kind of, uh, I think, it gives credence to what a lot of people are suggesting now, that, that Brown's ouster was really a, a palace coup, that this that came from within. Uh, we'll probably never get the whole story on that, but uh, it looks it looks a little, a little skeptical. Yeah, um, and you're probably right. Uh, it'll be interesting to read some people's memoirs maybe a few years out, 
you know, it will be a long time before we get the story. But there's, you're probably right. There, there may be more going on here than simply this candidate couldn't have won under the current context of uh, Me Too, etc. With with the revelations that came out about Brown, but uh, you know, maybe some of that story will we will see it come out in this leadership race. It's really, you know, parties are amalgams of of, uh, of groups of people and. And when it, usually during leadership races, we see a little bit of a of a lining up behind certain candidates that will um, draw a spotlight on this. And I'm not sure that's exactly the way you want to go, uh, particularly going into this election. And you know, uh, there's an opportunity here for the party to really kind of uh, coalesce around one person. I guess this is one of the reasons why Vic Fideli was hoping there would not be a leadership race. It would have been a lot easier to say, okay, I'm just going to be the leader, and then we'll go forward. However, that kind of riles the whole, you know, one party, one or one person, one vote, or one member, one vote uh, kind of populist uh, angle to the party as well. So, you know, there's no real easy way to get through this. Um, ideally, it would be a, a one one person, one woman, or one man that's going to coalesce the party and that they can, you know, win the election against the win liberals who are really suffering in the polls these days, or they were anyways. But uh, if this leadership race raises questions about all of and, and brings up all the divisions in the party, it's it's probably going to have a, the opposite effect on on the uh, PC's chances. What about the outsider factor? And uh, Pauline or, or Caroline, rather, I'm sorry, Caroline Mulroney and uh, and Phillips, of course, have not officially declared, but we're told that's imminent, and they're going to make it official, maybe even today. Uh, both of them have never even had elected office before, yet they still seem to be in this race, obviously, and still having an awful lot of support. What's going on here with this propensity for looking for those from outside the bubble to actually take the reins? Yeah, um, I think in some ways the uh, you've gotten you're a little bit at tabula rasa, so you don't have the the, uh, the the background of things you've said in the past that that can be brought to bear. Um, also, there's an energy, I guess, around new people coming in uh, to revitalize the party, um, maybe take the, the discussion away from some of the things that have plagued the party in the past. Um, you know, for Mulrooney, for sure, it's it's the star factor of the name. Obviously, people, the name recognition is instant, um, and uh, people are hoping that something like that will be uh, a way to galvanize voters and, and galvanize attention. Um, for Rod Phillips, maybe not the name recognition, but he definitely has a pedigree of being, you know, a, 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 a pretty successful business uh, entity in in, uh, in Ontario, um, and uh, somebody that I, I understand is 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 uh, it was I, at least identified as a star candidate for uh, the Ajax riding that he was going to run in. Um, so, or and he still will run in, obviously. Um, so, I, I think maybe people are hoping that that kind of helps them kind of make that that leap to uh, uh, maybe, I don't know, somewhat like a Trump factor that people are recognizing outsiders as, as being able to, to kind of connect and, and correct things that had happened in the past. Because even and Doug Ford's using well even Doug Ford's using that label, you know, I'm an outs- I'm not one of them. I'm an outsider. Yeah. You know? It, it's yeah. almost as if, you know, I'm pristine. I'm, 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 I'm not soiled like, like all those folks in Queens Park are. That's right, and it, it, there's a populist element to that um, that you're you're appealing to regular folks that don't get involved in politics uh, daily and and that want to see somebody swoop in and kind of 
fix things. Um, I don't know how well that that message is going to resonate here in Canada or in Ontario. Um, And I don't know how much of these people are going to be seen as as outsiders. As you mentioned, Doug Ford's been in politics before. He's run uh, and he's been involved in city council. Uh, Carolyn Mulroney, just by the virtue of of her name and, and the circles she's been in, She's not that far removed from from the political. Um, Rod Phillips may be a little bit more seen as that outsider. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he's considering that uh, to still throw his hat in the ring. Uh, we'll we'll have to see how they kind of uh, play those personas up um, on the very short campaign trail that we're going to see here uh, as they try to to get votes uh, from people in the caucus and sign up membership before February sixteenth. Well, uh, who knows what's going to happen over the next couple of days, but we'll certainly be in touch and talking about it again. Cheryl, thanks so much for the time. Great having you on the program today. Thank you. Take care. Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The question a lot of folks are asking, who, in heaven's name, would start a fundraising page on Facebook for Dellen Millard's Defense Fund? It's there. And people are responding to it. I, I don't know who'd contribute to this thing, but uh, more than 1,200 people have signed a petition demanding that Facebook shut down the page after they had a look at it. Uh, I don't know that it's happened yet. Uh, joining us to talk about this and, and the psyche of, of individuals who would actually have this this mindset, uh, let's bring Theo Sellis into the conversation. Registered family therapist. He is the president of Integrity Works and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Theo, how have you been? I've been well. It's been a long time, Bill. Well, yeah, I know, but you're always working every time I try to call you. This get you know making money for a living instead of coming on the program is really you know getting in the way of things here. Well, it is the first time I've heard from you since the Argos won the Grey Cup, and so I thought maybe this is a sign that the healing has begun. Well, actually, no. It's uh, the fact that I was at that game and I just thought out yesterday, so uh, that it took a little while. My darling fingers are okay now, so we'll we'll have to do this on a more regular basis. All right. All right. And uh, just typical Toronto fan looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, you won the Grey Cup, but that was like months ago. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let, let's let's talk about this. I, I saw this story today. Susan Claremont and our friend uh, from the Hamilton Spectator wrote a piece about this, uh, and a lot of people are aware of this. The obvious question, Theo, is who in the what 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 kind of person would actually do something like this? Because this is not the first time that this macabre attitude has developed. I mean, we know that there were people that were sending love letters and probably still do to people like Paul Bernardo and other people that are convicted murderers. Well, what's the fascination? Well, there's a number of possibilities. Obviously, I do not know the person who is behind this. Who knows? Maybe it is himself. Um, or it could be someone who really does believe in this innocence. Uh, or it could be people, like you say, who are attracted to people who have done terrible things. Or, and this is much more likely because the Facebook um, page is still up and I've been reviewing it, this is a classic internet troll situation where someone gets off on being inflammatory, you know, uh, puts intentionally provocative, distasteful messages and gets off on, has some sort of sense of power that they get from being able to pull strings, you know, be able to get a reaction from people. They feel superior because then they get people, I've seen it, and of course, understandably so, people being very upset uh, and the more upset people get, the more that person feels a sense of delight and control because of being able to get some reaction, get some attention, and do more uh, to try to do more of that. And, of course, people react, and then, of course, that person feels, again, are able to pull those strings and have that sense of power. 
I, I'm wondering the same thing uh, when you look at some of the stuff that's on the page here, and, and just how authentic this is, or if it is just, I don't want to say it's a joke, but I mean somebody's you know sick idea of, of, of enjoyment. Uh, it just sounds, I don't know, there's a couple of the quotes here that I pulled off of this. Uh, My dear friend Della Millard is being unjustly persecuted for the murder of his father, whom he loved dearly. I have grown up with Della and could not name a sweeter, more gentle person. There's no way he could have done this. Uh, he's been convicted of the of, of the murders already, but I mean, clearly, uh, and the person is anonymous, by the way. They don't actually give their name here. And uh, there's been some pushback on this. You've read the page, but uh, for those that haven't seen it yet, uh, they go on to say, some of the greatest men in history were greatly reviled and persecuted until time showed otherwise. Like Jesus of Nazareth and all the other saints and martyrs, Dellen's time will come. That's uh, that's a little over the top. Well, that's the internet troll angle that to me exposes it for just being provocative and over the top. Someone behind here is giggling and probably listening to us talking and feeling very happy that we are, which on some level, you know, leads me to think that we should probably not be talking about it. <laughs> I would rather, you know, I, I mean, I get that we would talk about it because it's a, it's a news story, but the more people pay attention to this, the more people react, the more provocative that person is able to feel, the more they get from it, the more they get off on it. There's, there's a giggly person, a little giggling person behind this that's feeling vindicated and enjoying this attention. Let's and, let's uh, assume that I, I I tend to agree with you. I think the more I see this, I think, but there is an element, and we've seen this before, where there are people that worship convicted murderers, and 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 sure. it's it's this reminds us of that, and in in the broader context, I'm I'm fascinated to find out what kind of people are actually doing that, writing letters to the Bernardos yeah. and the Clifford Olsons and people like that. So there's all kinds of possibilities. I find it fascinating, for sure. Like, uh, Charlie Manson certainly had Yeah, his, exactly. He had his share of admirers. Ted Bundy got married, and um, someone had his child. So there's a, a number of possibilities there. It's always, it's always tempting to try to narrow down human behavior to one specific thing, because then it's more easy for us to understand, but I think it generally is more complex than that. But uh, there are people who may feel uh, had they have themselves been misunderstood and slighted, and so they take this on as a, a rescue mission. It's a kindred soul, so they really do identify with this person. Maybe they have encountered a lot of injustice in their life, and so they think, well, this is just another person who's been persecuted. So in a way, they're working out their issue by connecting with them. They also, there are people who believe that they can change that person if they just love them enough and nurture them enough, because obviously that person was really hurt and damaged themselves. And so they could feel better about themselves and better about what they're able to offer to another person by being able to change them, rescue them, nurture them. You know, they, they kind of see that person as a damaged little boy kind of thing. And if they just love and nurture them, they can become this sort of a rescue person. Uh, and of course, there's always the angle of, hey, you know, I don't have a lot going on in my life. I'm kind of an empty person myself. If I attach myself to this other person who's very notorious, I can get a lot of attention myself. I can be attached to this and get the attention that I haven't had in my life, or maybe I can make money off it by writing a book. So there's all kinds of possibilities as to why people, oftentimes damaged people, hurt people, um, are attached themselves to someone like this. But are they oblivious to, to the facts in, in these situations? Uh, because let's face it, I mean, in, in the Bernardo and Olson situations and, and some of the other, the Picton murders out in British Columbia, we know what happened. I mean, it, it, you know, they've been convicted, the trials have gone on, and we've got some pretty gruesome facts and figures about exactly what happened. Yet that doesn't seem to matter to these people, or maybe that's what gets them going. I don't know. I think that um, recent political events has called into question just how important facts are to a lot of people. 
facts, facts, uh, facts are not nearly as important to a lot of people as emotions. And so if they can get a particular feeling that they are needing or looking for, rather than having some sort of basic, hard, rational assessment of the truth, um, that is much more attractive to them than uh, going through the process of trying to figure out what actually happened, what didn't happen. That's not as relevant as how I feel and how this makes me feel and how I need to feel, how I'm lacking something, and this person is going to give that to me, and so I'm going to either vote for him or marry him and have this child. Should we fear these people? I mean, if they, if they have a propensity to to admire people like this, I and mean, we're talking about mass murderers, convicted mass murderers, is is there a, a, a possibility that that may be the road they want to go down? Well, they may not be people that would do it on themselves, but if they were instructed to do that, as Manson's family certainly demonstrated, if they're instructed by doing that to someone who they've become loyal to, attached to, given these sort of powers to them, that is possible for sure. That's a, that's that's a frightening aspect. I think that there are people out there that. But again, when you start hearing some of the stories, and we're guess we're we're just starting to hear some of the stories about what's going on with the MacArthur murder investigation in Toronto now, uh, you know. <laughs> How many times do we hear that descriptor? Nice person, uh, very friendly. Oh yeah, great guy. And then you, Bundy was the same way, uh, and so many others. You look at the people that knew them, and they say the last thing I ever would have thought was this guy would actually take a life, let alone become a serial killer. But it just—it's you're right. There's a tendency for us to try to want to, uh, I guess, fit people into a box, and and boy, that's that's where you can really get into trouble here. Yeah, well, people who do these kind of things, the reason why they're able to do those things is because they are oftentimes actually really skilled at being able to get a particular reaction or emotion from someone. We usually think of people who are serial killers as being uncaring kind of people who don't have empathy for others, um, and they're kind of monsters. But the truth of that is is that um, although they can certainly be monstrous, and there's an aspect of them monstrous, there are also parts of them that are able to actually have a high degree of empathy for other people because they know exactly what other people need to hear in order to have a particular feeling. So they can identify with that particular feeling. So they can manipulate people really, really well. They can be very, very charming. And so um, they don't look like the monsters that we think that they're going to look. Of course not, because if they did, they wouldn't be able to get away with what they do. So let, let's talk about the vehicle. Again, I don't want to get into this specific situation, but... The, the 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 propensity for people to go on social media and and spread these sorts of things and others to to jump on board with the uh, something like this and and others. I mean, in the past, it was writing letters to the prison where guys like Bernardo were. They don't need to do that anymore. I mean, you could just get a Twitter account or a Facebook page and bingo, you're in business. It, it, is 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 this a cry for more regulation for those sorts of things to make sure that these 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 people don't have that as a as a vehicle to try to spread these stories? It's a dangerous path to go to, you know, yeah. um, I, because um, it's distasteful. There, there's no doubt about it. And you can see the the, the, um, the possibility for harm for the people who, of course, the families that have been affected and that are grieving. And that's just, uh, that, so it's very distasteful. And so uh, our immediate reaction, and that's probably part of what the, the troll is, is looking for, is uh, um, a very strong emotional one that says we have to shut these people down. Um, but it's a little scary to me because, um, you know, where do you draw the line, right? Like, if, if let's suppose, hypothetically, and I don't, you know, I don't believe this, but let's suppose, um, let's suppose you really believe that someone was unjustly convicted and uh, you really believe that there was an issue here where they 
needed support and you really believe that you should stand up for that and ask for support. That in itself is not a bad principle in a democratic society, right? We don't, we don't want to squelch that just because we suspect rightly, I think probably rightly so in this case, uh, that it's malicious or that it's, it's something that is just done to be provocative to people. I, me, I, I prefer to think about it in terms of, you know, maybe this person has a right to put this up, but then Facebook also has a right to shut it down and say, we don't want to be associated with this. Not, not something that we stand for. This is not the kind of cause, not the kind of uh, topic or not kind of uh, way of being able to, we want, we don't want us associated with our brand kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried about the whole regulated thing because I, I'm really sort of stand for, of course, people's rights to freedom of expression, right? So it's a tough call. Well, it absolutely is. I mean, we were having a discussion earlier in the morning here about this in the newsroom. And, and you know, the, the question I just asked you, we were banding about back in there, and they said, well, what if it was, what if this was like 25 years ago, and this was David Milgard that was in prison, and somebody, if, right. if there were a Facebook back then, and said, no, he's innocent. Oh, no, he's not. He was convicted. Yeah. Uh, and guess what? <laughs> you know, the, bingo. So, right. and, and I'm not suggesting for a second uh, that, you know, that that's the situation with Millard, but that's the mindset, and I guess the tact that these people would take and simply say, look, I've got the right to do this. You may not like it, but I've got the right to do it. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that's a, a brilliant um, analogy. Um, and so, I, you know, when I think we, if I look at the, the page, this, this ridiculous internet troll uh, raised money for the only one who compares and to do uh, Jesus and all that kind of stuff. If I look at the reactions, the reactions are oftentimes really, really vicious and really hostile and really over the top. Um, and again, it comes from, I understand where it's coming from, but Maybe we don't do that. Like, maybe we don't take the lure. Like, the troll is dangling. That's the whole point of a troll is, like, dragging this kind of lure behind us. And then we, like, react to that with this kind of vicious response because it comes out of our own, like, empathy and grief and hurts and all that sort of thing. Maybe we just ignore it. Or maybe we, we send a message just saying, look, I'm sorry you're having these issues. I wish you would stop. Or uh, I hope you get help or something like this. But, like, maybe we don't react the way that they're looking for us to react. Maybe we react either out of kindness or we just ignore it and not give it the attention that that person's looking for. Because we've had that discussion when it comes to things like uh, hate mail, hate literature, things uh, in that regard. And, and there are those that simply say, well, I disagree with that and that offends me, so we should make that illegal or not allow them to do that. And, uh, I mean, if you believe in free speech, there's, there's a line there, and I'm not even sure where the line is. That seems to vary from case to case. Uh, that's the best advice I gave to somebody when they were talking about this earlier today. Just don't look at it. If, well, you, if you don't like it. I, I'd like to think Facebook will shut it down, but on the other hand, if they don't, just don't look at it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's up to Facebook to shut it down or not. Again, um, Facebook has kind of odd policies about shutting things down. I mean, I think it was you and I were talking uh, with, like, within like a year ago about a Canadian photographer. Remember, she had posted these pictures of uh, nude women behind mannequins, and that apparently that was shut down because that was offensive. And so I it's kind of hard to know where Facebook really draws a line and what's considered to be offensive or not offensive. Um, but I, I, I hope that they have the right to make, to say we don't want it there just as much as this person has, a, I guess, right to be able to post it. Um, I, I think I'd rather go that way than, than just reacting and um, becoming really hostile. Look, I've been a victim of this kind of sort of a, to, to a certain degree, too. I'm, I'm in a, a public person. You are as well. Um, I get students sometimes who are upset with me and they can anonymously post all these terrible things about me as a professor and, you know, I rate my professor and they can do all that kind of stuff. I think it's horrible. It's a disgusting thing to do, but at the same time, 
I don't want them to not have the right to post things, even though I find it distasteful. I'd rather, you know, overall people just kind of respond out of kindness or ignore it. Theo Sellis uh, from Integrity Works. Uh, go to his Facebook page if you want to get some inspiring stuff. Uh, I got about 10 seconds left here. I know you're a huge fan. Who's going to win on Sunday? Well, I hope you'll take part in my charity. I do this charity. Thing oh, yeah, yeah. Year, okay, right? yeah. Let's. Okay, go ahead and talk, explain that. Well, uh, what I do is I invite people to make bets with me so they can pick their favorite charity. And I have mine, of course, World Wildlife Fund. And uh, they, everyone bets like $10 or $20 or something. Listen, if I lose, I have to pay a whole pile of people 10 or $20. And if I, if, I, if I win, they just have to pay their 10 or $20. So I'm going for the Eagles. I hope and get a few points. And then uh, we always, every year, we raise a bunch of money for your charity. You get some awareness of that and, uh, and do some good out of it. Well, yeah, we've done that with Great Cups, of course, with uh, our CHML Children's Fund and, and your World Wildlife Federation. So uh, I'll take New England. I'll t- so with bingo, we're on. So game right. on. We'll see what happens on Sunday. Excellent. Thanks, Theo. Take care, man. Theo Sellis uh, from Integrity Works. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.